0: welcome to the bill kelly podcast i'm bill kelly well the national advisory committee on immunization has created some unnecessary confusion over whether or not one vaccine is better than another it's one of those stories that really makes you shake your head but what's the real message here we're going to talk to richard brennan about that the covid 19 pandemic has put a lot of stress on the workers and that extends outside not just the medical community but other places as well there are some bosses who are not helping Surveys found out that some are using the pandemic to push their employees even harder. Dr. Stephanie Ross is an expert in this field. She'll join us to talk about it. And as the United States economy starts lifting off once again, Canada's a little bit behind. Is there any chance of a recovery soon, or is that still off in the distance? We'll get the lowdown on that as well. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. One of the more frustrating stories, I guess, came ahead uh, to do about the vaccination rollout. And we know there have been some problems and some blips and some problems with supply chain. But, you know, the message has been consistent from the health panel, the science panel, from most of our political leaders saying, look, get the shot. Whatever one is available, get it, just because we need to get people vaccinated. And we... for the most part, seem to buy into that. Then along comes the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. they called NACI. That's the acronym for it. Uh, they came out this week and said, well, you know, some of these vaccines are better than others, so shop wisely. Uh, and that just threw everybody into a tizzy. Kerry uh, Bowman, who's a bioethicist at the U of T, uh, reacted this way.
1: I was pretty well horrified by it. Um, you know, they're kind of almost intellectualizing it. The take home message for most Canadians, although they tried to qualify it as much as they could, is that there's an A list and a B list for vaccines. And there's really not. Um, All the vaccines are good and all the vaccines are, you know, safe. Uh, There's concerns with every vaccine in terms of rare events. So I, I think it erodes confidence.
0: Do you think? (laughs) What were they thinking? I guess that's the question we're all asking. One of many stories we want to cover, and to do that, we're uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program our good friend Richard Brennan, uh, former journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill uh, for many years. Badger, good to have you with us. Hope you're doing well these days.
1: Thanks. Uh, Everything's good here, Bill.
0: Now, did did you get the no-name vaccine, or did you get the Class A vaccine? Because according Uh, to NACI, there's uh, a difference.
1: Oh, geez. When I read that and heard that, I... Well, I just shook my head. I mean, it, why don't we just complicate everything? You know, we have one message where we're telling people, grab whatever vaccine you can get because they're all good. And then we have these clowns at the National Advisory Committee on, on, on COVID to say, well, you know, one's better one's better than the other one. That Well, just a minute now. The message all along has been, Get whatever you can, get vaccinated. That's the most important issue here.
0: And and by the way, it's that's not just the political message. That's from the science table, Dr. Uni and and, and Dr. Bogosh, all the people we've talked to many times. The World Health Organization is, is singing from the same song sheet, too. So who are these guys to come along and say, well, we don't think so? Well,
1: oh, I think your you're, you're, uh, previous uh, clip there where, where the gentleman said, you know, they're, they're just overthinking this. Well, it's it's one thing for a bunch of scientists and, and, and medical experts to sit around and say, well, maybe this one's a little better than that one. Maybe this one's okay. That one's you know, should, should could be beefed up. That's all well and good for them to bounce ideas off each other's. But to put out a statement to a public that has been used to hearing one thing and for them to say, another it just completely unacceptable and i don't know what they were thinking i don't think they were thinking
0: and and you know what the result was and i mean just as we can conf- confuse, confused this that they're, they're going to get the apprehensions and nervous aspects to this and and what the, i guess what really frustrates me about this though badger is our our uh, the takeout, I guess, on this was actually getting pretty good. I mean, about three four months ago when the vaccination program started, uh, the 50, it was almost 50-50 Canadians saying, I'll get it right away. No, I'm not so sure. That went up to about 78% a couple of weeks ago. i got to assume it's down again because now a lot of people are having second thoughts.
1: Well, I- I'm hoping they don't. I- I'm hoping this is just a blip and people, you know, uh, learned people see it for what it is. It's just a, a bunch of uh, you know an advisory panel of you know tall foreheads uh, saying okay this is one thing's better than the other, but people just want to get vaccinated. They they really don't care what they get get. They just want it done, and that's the message. You know it, we, I don't know how much how many more times you know politicians and and care officials have to say it just get it done. That's the most important thing. So I'm hoping beyond hope that everybody just puts this behind it behind them and ignores that, uh, you know, that brief uh, interlude, if you will, by uh, by the advisory panel. It just it was unnecessary and and hopefully will pass
0: i understand because there might be some trepidation because we've heard some stories about people that have had adverse reactions and and sadly there have been a couple of deaths about that but uh as we've talked about before there's a risk in every medical procedure whether it's a vaccination whether it's a surgery anything else you always have to sign a waiver and say you know understand this could happen probably not going to and when they broke down the numbers especially when it came to astrazeneca uh yes it could cause clotting but i think it's like 0.001 or something like that uh it's 10 times more likely that smoking is going to give you blood clots and a hundred times more likely that covid will give you blood clots so i mean what's where's where's the risk here
1: well it, it, it's a gamble but every everything in life's a gamble you walk out the front door of your you know your house and, and climb in your car and two seconds later you could be killed in your car Imagine
0: hey badger there's a space satellite falling on earth it could fall well, it's not going to well, fall in canada well, but i mean you know
1: <laughs> life's like if, that yeah if you know good but they could go on. We could go on forever, but the point is that people just need to get it done, and the people, majority of people, want it done. You know, for those who don't want it done, well, so be it. Uh, but the majority do want it done, and hopefully, we'll you know reach some kind of herd immunity immunity uh, at some point,
2: point. and
1: that's 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 the point. That's the that's the big issue here. You know, it's quite frankly, it's not what uh, they said in Ottawa or, 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 you know, suggested. The point is that everybody of any bit of sense is telling people to get get vaccinated because that's the most important thing.
0: Exactly. But, of course, it's turned into a political football, as we anticipated that it would. And, you know, you've got the Ford government now that's spending a lot of money on an advertising campaign telling us uh, how inept the federal government is with the borders and with the vaccination program and everything else. And and there's going to be back and forth on that. I mean, let's face it, a a lot of the the feedback from that has become very political. I mean, if if you like Doug Ford and the Conservatives, it's all Justin Trudeau's fault. And if you're a liberal supporter, then it's all Doug Ford's fault. But there's one element here that that Ford cannot escape. I mean, he can play deflection on some of these issues, and some people are going to buy into that. But this this issue with the long term care facilities and and the way that his government has handled this is an albatross around his neck that's just not going to go
1: away. Well, Bill, you can't talk to me like that. <laughs> 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 that was the minister. That that's, that's Minister, minister Fullerton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't speak to me like that. Well, get a grip on yourself. I mean, you you might be in the wrong business if you can't accept uh, criticism from the opposition. That's what it's all about. But that aside, you know, we, they promised, remember back a year ago. A year ago, yeah, almost a year ago this this month. We had that report from the the military folks that came in to help us. They looked into five uh, long-term care homes and just, it was a litany of horror stories at these five homes, and you know it would just curl your hair. And Ford, at that time, you know he promised, you know he promised that they were going to, uh, you know, to investigate these these uh, recommendations or, or findings, I should say. The military had; he they were going to investigate it, and and they had to turn over whatever they found out to the police for further investigation well guess what that never happened
0: sylvia jones the attorney general made that point yesterday that's no we've not done any investigation at all and, and of course by extension there are, there are no charges going to be laid in this situation and and you know badger i don't doubt that the premier was emotionally affected by those numbers. I was. I think anybody would be. You know, to, especially the fact that I think what motivated me to, to make this promise about the, the inquiry was 26 of those people of the thousands that died did not die from COVID. They died from dehydration and lack of care. That's that's not on the that's not on the virus. That's on the facilities. And they get away. They get a, they get a, a, a get out of jail card from the provincial government every time.
1: Well, neither that. They brought in a law where you can't sue yeah. the, uh, the uh, owners and operators of these long-term care homes. So, I mean, who are we trying to protect here? I mean, I think the focus should be on protecting the people that are residents of lo- those long-term care homes. And, you know, so my big concern, and I think the concern of many of the listeners out there, okay, let's say things get back to normal within the next year. So is it going to go right back to the way it was? It, it, you know, are, are you know, private operators going to find ways of cutting corners to make money? And that's what it's all about. That's the only sure way is. you can make money at a long-term care home is to cut corners. Is to you know maybe buy a lesser quality of food or or not hire as many people or many workers to look after the uh, the residents. And so on and so forth. Is it just going to go back to that? And we haven't had any inkling so far that that's going to happen, that things are going to improve. I can't, I haven't seen it. I don't think anybody out there has seen it. We keep hearing a lot of talk about this and that, and everything's going to be hunky dory at the end of the day, but I don't believe that's the case
0: i got to ask you something, though, because it's been nagging me for some time, and I think we brought, you and I talked about this a couple of months ago, but it, it, I think it bears to be brought up again. Uh, you you were down at Queen's Park and in Hill for many, many years, uh, and you know, I mean, you know how the sausage is made, okay? I mean, you know uh, the, the ugly truths about what goes on, uh, not in front of the cameras, in front of the microphones, but how government works. Uh, And as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, I I don't want to paint Doug Ford as a monster that says, I don't give a damn about these people. I don't think he's that kind of guy. I really don't. But who, and if he's sincere about, for instance, this promise, and he's sincere about doing long-term care, and he's sincere about a couple of other things he said about hotspots, what happens when he walks away from the podium? Is somebody pulling him aside and said, Premier, you can't do that. You're not doing that. I mean, who's pulling the strings here? Well, that's
1: a good question. I mean, you know, it's... Some people, you know, critics of the board would say he's not listening. But we don't know because we're not there. Or, or is he coming up with ideas and others are saying that, no, you, you can't do that. You know, that's the big, the big issue here, at Bill, is there's no clarity. We're not seeing what's going on behind the curtain. And that's part of the problem here. Residents of Ontario are not finding out what's going on, what the issues are, what they're doing about it, and where we're going from here. They just don't, we don't know. And if we, they just would tell the people that, you know, here's what we're doing right now to improve conditions at the long-term care homes. You know, number one, two, three, four, and so on. no, we don't get that. We we find out, you know, from reports recently from that uh, report on just that damning report on uh, long-term care homes. Uh, Just another report, by the way, on on long-term care homes that was damning. We, we, We hear about that, but we don't hear what the government's doing or prepared to do to address those issues.
0: Well, and you know what that's caused. I mean, because we've heard from the science table, people like Dr. Uni and others that are on that table, that said, you know, actually he almost quit. I mean, he told us that on the program the day after he was so frustrated that uh, they simply said, you know what, we're not we're not submitting stuff to the government anymore. We will, but he says we're going to the public first and saying this is what we recommend. Because he says somehow the message is getting lost between the, the 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 document that they give to the the premier's office and what the premier says later that afternoon. He says there's a disconnect here because that's not what we recommended, and and you know they're getting frustrated about this, and that's why the public is frustrated because if you're getting mixed messages and if you're getting contrary messages, people are going to lose faith in government. Then they're not. This is chicken little. Nobody's going to believe them anymore, no matter what they say.
1: Well, you remember. At- that old statement of follow the money. Yep. Well I that is it was true then and is true now. A lot of this has to do with the government looking at, you know, weighing the odds and saying, Do can should we spend this money? Whatever that money is being spent on. That, believe me, that is an issue. Governments deal with this every day. And when it comes to long-term care homes, I don't think many people in this province will say, "We want you to spend less money." It's just—it's just not happening. And, and money is an issue. You know, we all understand that. You know, God, we're throwing—you know—spending money like uh, drunken sailors. But the point is, it's necessary right now. And and folks who have, you know, uh, loved ones in those long-term care homes are ones that don't want money spent to to repair this problem, and so this doesn't happen again. Because, Bill, history repeats itself often, and we know what happens. One government has failed. Somebody said, you know, you can't point the finger at, uh, at, at blame because it goes so far back, it gets so fuzzy, you don't know who to blame anymore. Yep. And and that's, that is part, you know, Ford can't, he's, he's not to blame for everything that's happened along long current care home by, by any stretch, but he's on the watch now. He's the guy that's calling the shots now, so it's up to him to finally do something about it. And, you know, and if he does, you know, I think uh, it, it's going to be, it's going to augur well for him if he comes out and says, this is not going to happen again. Here's the measures we're taking. But we're not getting that now. We're not getting no, we're that not. so far. And there's a year to the next election. Maybe he's going to announce that six months from now, just in the election, and say, every, you know, this is this is what's going to happen. You know, this can't be allowed to continue.
0: Well, it's cold comfort if he does that to the 26 families who lost loved ones because of dehydration and, and poor care. Uh, Badger, we got to leave it there. We're just about out of time on this segment. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Uh, have a good weekend. Uh, have a good Mother's Day weekend. I guess we're not allowed to get together with family, but we'll do it virtually, I suppose, and uh, we'll talk again soon.
1: We'll do our best. Okay, Thanks, Bill.
0: Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, a former journalist for the Toronto Star, uh, who covered the political scene both federally and provincially. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I think we've all seen the, the pictures, at least in our minds, over the last, well, 14 or 15 months of uh, healthcare workers, nurses, doctors, uh, support workers, you know, just leaning against the wall, exhausted after so many hours of work and uh, trying to save people's lives, trying to keep people going uh, through the crisis. And and it's, it's heartbreaking to see this. Uh, and we always ask ourselves, I guess, you know, are we doing enough to support those workers? I mean, you know, do they feel as if we're, we've we got their backs uh, because of the great work that they're doing? And the answer for the most part is maybe not. Uh, but it's not just healthcare workers, unfortunately. A recent survey indicates that a number of people uh, that are still working these days through the pandemic uh, feel as if sometimes their bosses are actually taking advantage of them. That's a rather troubling statistic. Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Dr. Stephanie Ross. Uh, Dr. Ross is the director and associate professor with the School of Labor Studies at McMaster University. Uh, doctor, so good you had some time for us today. Thanks for jumping in.
2: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Bill
0: this bothers me i mean the healthcare stuff is one thing and 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 i know that initially uh both governments i guess at one time one well, more the federal government i suppose said look at we're going to top up your money we're going to give you extra pay for psws and other stuff like that but the, but the thing that i found very frustrating about this doctor is they put a sunset clause on it and said we're going to do this till like june or whatever it was well the, the pandemic is still on and the support's Absolutely. gone i mean wh- where's the logic there
2: Absolutely. Uh, well, I, I think that some of this is a bit of uh, PR and pandemic theater. And I think what uh, people who participated in our research told us is that, you know, both on the on the level of health and safety and on the level of you know pandemic pay, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of efforts being made, and and we did see that 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 workers talked about how employers did make. Improvements or changes to the the design of their workplaces at the beginning of the pandemic, but a lot of those things went away as the pandemic ground on. and that in in fact, a lot of workers report not just increased stress and anxiety at work, which I think we would see as expected, but mm-hmm. that the the issues that they were raising at work around their health and safety, And around their sense of being appreciated through income and through flexibility and understanding by their employers started to fade over the the period of the pandemic. So, you know, one construction, female construction worker told us that her employer not only neglected recommendations for creating a safer working environment that were brought up by workers, but even laughed at them. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on in, in workplaces across the province. Um, And I think you're very right to say, like, the the rolling back of pandemic pay is especially egregious because um, we know that employers have received wage subsidies and we know that that workers who are on the front lines, in particular in the private sector, are working for companies that are making profits hand over fist. And so they can well afford to continue to pay people uh, a, a premium for putting their lives at risk in order to allow the rest of us to be able to uh, meet our needs while this pandemic is being dealt with. Uh,
0: we need to uh, underscore a very important point in, in the research that you did though here, Doctor. is uh, There's a huge difference here between union and non-union positions, isn't there?
2: That's true. Uh, it, it was actually quite remarkable, although we, we do know in general that you know unionized workers fare better in terms of income in terms of various kinds of access to benefits and other kinds of protections in the workplace especially with respect to health and safety Uh, but it was quite remarkable that we saw uh that unionized workers were much less likely to have lost income during the pandemic they were much less likely to have lost their jobs than their non-union counterparts Uh, and i think that we see that uh, non-unionized workers were much more likely to report a negative interaction with their employer. And by negative interaction, we mean, you know, uh, uh, unwarranted discipline, bullying, being pushed to work harder, uh, having trouble being paid on time, which was one of the most clear indicators that something's going wrong in the workplace. So if you were non-union uh, in the pandemic, you were much more likely to be pushed out of the labor market. And if you stayed in your job, you were much more likely to uh, have something negative happen to your job than your unionized counterpart. Uh, and it's it's a, I think what we're seeing in this moment is that the trends that we saw before the pandemic are being intensified. So the, the experience that workers are having in the labor market are being even further polarized. Some workers have some relative protection and those who don't have protection, whether from a union uh, or otherwise, uh, their situation is getting much, much worse
0: and by the way it's it's not as if the people that are unionized jobs are living you know the the high life here uh we did a story i know you know the story doctor earlier this week about the the canada post people that actually had a retirement party uh, right in the middle of the pandemic you know at at its peak just a couple of weeks ago i got a a, i got a message just after we did that segment from a worker here in the hamilton area uh, who did not want to give the name for obvious reasons Mm -hmm. and said that's not the tip of the iceberg he says you Mm -hmm. should see the working conditions they don't use ppe they're not social distancing all the stuff that they say they were going to do And this is a unionized shop. This is a, the yeah. Canada Post. And yeah. he says, he I'm afraid to go to work. It's unsafe. And I, I know you're hearing that from union and non-union workers, the people that are in non-compliance. But do you absolutely. want to be the one that rocks the boat?
2: No, absolutely. And I mean, I guess it's also about what, what climate is management creating that leads to this level of non-compliance. I, I think that that's a big part of the story. Um, you know, when you are pushed to work hard, and fast to get a lot of work done, which a, a lot of people reported to us that there, the level, the, the expectations that, uh, at work have increased over the pandemic. So you've got a situation where you've got a lot of uh, job responsibilities and you've got to get it done fast. That's when uh, things like PPE and social distancing and all of the things that re- that are required to be done to make the workplace safe in this new environment, go by the wayside, because what is the most important thing is to get the job done fast. And so workers adjust to that situation. But you're right, it's, it's not just non-union workplaces. Uh, Canada Post is a good example, where people don't perhaps feel as much ability to say no as they might. Uh, we see that in education as well. We have all kinds of comments from uh, people from uh, who working in schools about, the 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 way in which the design of their workplaces just made it impossible before the lockdown to really do social distancing and that's not something that that workers really have a lot of control over right they're they're put into buildings and put into situations where they are crowded and together uh, and it, it and they are at risk uh, but I, I'd say too that um, that that whether one is union or non-union, what we see people telling us is that employers are very aware that the level of unemployment in the economy gives them more power.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: one, one uh, worker talked about how uh, their boss was kind of on a power trip and was saying things to them like, you should be grateful for having a job. Um, and even asking workers to do non-work-related things because they gave the impression, whether implicitly or explicitly, that there were other people who were desperate for work and if you didn't do this, we could replace you. And I mean, this is this is depression level uh, kind of power dynamics, right? Those are stories that we used to hear from the Great Depression. Um, and uh, that we're hearing this in our survey is extremely troubling. And it tells us something about how employers, some employers are, aware that unemployment gives them more power with respect to their employees and are taking advantage of this huge economic and social crisis uh, in ways that are going to create long-term negative effects on workplaces. Um, I think that's something we that employers need to think about. When workers feel unappreciated, overworked, unrewarded for doing more effort they're also going to feel angry and betrayed. And the, the level of mistrust that's going to kind of fester uh, isn't going to go away after the pandemic's done
0: and we don't want to paint a picture here that all employers are are, you know evil monsters i mean because we've heard some great stories of people that have done incredible things with their employees to try to get them through and give them whatever assistance they can and i know you have to balance it with that uh but which is why these stories need to be told uh, about the bad apples the ones that are doing this and and some of the stuff you've heard here doctor i i I just find incredulous i mean uh, basically uh, i for many of them as you mentioned in the reporting that's saying look at you you know you're lucky to have a job i got 20 Mm -hmm. people out here that don't you know that want your Job, of if you don't want to do what I'm telling you to do, there's that mm-hmm. element. But there's also the element where they're calling them in and saying, "Look at, uh, we're going to charge, we're going to pay you less money now uh, than yes. we were planning on doing." And if you don't like it, there's the door. Uh, and and the, most of these, of course, are non-union positions that are doing this. But I mean, it's really taking advantage of a situation.
2: Absolutely, no, you're quite right to say this. I mean, in our in our study, we found that 25 percent of people reported these kinds of negative interactions. So it means that you know, 75% of our respondents, uh, you know, didn't identify one of these really kind of negative or egregious uh, uh, problems. But I think that it is true that even in those workplaces where the employer has been relatively compassionate or flexible um, or responsive to people's health and safety concerns, etc., there is still that, turning up of the dial in terms of how much people are expected to do um, and that people are feeling exhausted. Um, and that is all across the sectors of the economy. Um, and there, there, I think, will be a reckoning uh, eventually. Um, and I think that, uh, that employers who are in the the 25% uh, that, uh, of, of workers who have reported that they are um, being in some ways maltreated uh, are thinking about this situation in very short-sighted ways. Um, and so I, I do hope that our research does shine a light on this and kind of refocuses our attention on the need for all workers to have dignity at work, to have their health, their Legitimate health and safety considerations um, be taken seriously, but also to not be taken advantage of in a circumstance that is n- nothing, is not in their control.
0: And, and, listen, there's another element to this, too, that I think we have to bring up here, because it's the elephant in the room, is the government should have done more right from the outset. And I, I give the federal cre- government credit. I mean, they jumped in right away with CERB, and it was flawed, <laughs> to be sure. And, and uh, you know, there were some misdirections and some mistakes that were made, and they, they, they've made some adjustments, which is good. But sure. the countries that have done well against this virus, as you know, Doctor, the, the New Zealands, the Australias, Hong Kong, places like that, uh, right from the get-go, the government says, we got your back. Uh, mm-hmm. paid sick days you got it okay we're not going to argue we're not going to debate this we're not going to make this a, a you know a, a football that's going to get batted around between the provinces and the fed they said we're doing this and this is how it's going to work uh... Mm-hmm. and you look at the way it was handled and a very you know contentious issue like paid sick days it's over a year now that they were going back and forth it's their fault no it's their fault Uh, now we've got some semblance of a commitment i guess from the ontario government about that although it's it's that's a it's pretty frail what they're actually proposing to do here uh and it's it's one of these things that i guess really exacerbates the situation because it's part of that mixed messaging that the employees are getting if you're sick don't go to work well if you don't go to work you don't get paid Uh, So what are are the choices? And and you know one of the great hot spots in this country right now, sadly, is Peel region, where there's a lot of warehouse workers and things of this nature. Uh, And and they get infected, and they take it home to other people, and those families get infected. The government should have and could have stepped in a lot sooner to do something like this, and it would have eased an awful lot of the pressure.
2: Absolutely. I mean, there's no question that the lack of paid sick days has been an enormous uh, contributor to the, the second and third wave. I mean, as well as decisions around opening up and as well as decisions around what is essential and non-essential. But the the let's say we agree that there are certain kinds of industries that are essential to keep going. Um, the lack of paid sick days that are accessible, that don't require a layer of, like, bureaucratic application to access, that don't interrupt people's income, are they are essential. Uh, they, and they are essential whether we're in a pandemic or not, but th- the point becomes more clear when, the, when uh, we have a, a health crisis that um, you, you, you really can't say people are using their paid sick days Uh, To shirk work, which is often the argument that comes up uh, on the side of those who don't want paid sick days. But, you know, the the government, the provincial government has raised the issue of, like, well, you know, small business can't afford paid sick days. But they have the policy tools to be able to design a a, a provision in the ESA if they they want to um, subsidize paid sick days for businesses under a certain size. They can do that. And they can design a paid sick day entitlement that, that would get the, the largest companies that are at the center of a lot of these outbreaks, like Amazon, uh, who I think they have the money to pay for it, frankly. I yeah, think, I think that so. There's no it's not going to break that. them. There's no debate about that, exactly. Um, uh, and that, you know, we can actually uh, be able to access some of the enormous wealth that's been created during this pandemic because enormous wealth has been created for some, uh, and use that wealth to actually uh, do what is required for our collective health and safety. Um, But, you know, that's a question of who has the power in this discussion. Um, And up until now, uh, the provincial government has, yes, preferred to cast blame and preferred not to confront the major employers that uh, are standing in the way of something like paid sick days, and say, "Look, for the, the sake of our collective health, you got to pay up." Um, and that is a that is also, I think, a source of a great deal of anger and betrayal, sense of betrayal on the part of Ontario workers. Uh, th- that that makes workers feel like they are being blamed for going to work. Uh, When they are sick, because they have to choose between that, you know, public health uh, consideration and their own family's uh, livelihood and survival. And that is uh, an impossible choice.
0: And by the way, we don't have to go all the way over to Australia or New Zealand to, to find a model for this. Uh, last March, when the first lockdown was announced, and, and it was in Ontario, but in some other provinces too, the Yukon Territory right off the bat enacted 14 paid sick days for everyone mm-hmm. and said, this is going to be the policy. They were the leaders in this, not Ontario, not Quebec, not DC. It was the Yukon that simply said, this is what we need to make sure that people don't spread it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I applaud any elected official that's going to show that kind of vision and insight. Uh, mm-hmm. And sadly, we did things in half measures, and it, it filters right down. I mean, you talk about trickle down, doctor. I mean, when you do that at the at the provincial and, and at the uh, political level, uh, then that has a negative impact on employees, uh, certainly on employers as well. Mm-hmm. And it creates an awful lot of the, I, I guess, the tension that's there and the stress on everybody involved in the situ and this, in the whole system. Uh,
2: absolutely, no, uh, for sure. When when people. When people have the uh, force of law behind their uh, ability to say, like, I'm not coming into work, uh, it does provide them with that kind of like moral backing, right? And if that is a if that's ambiguous, or if there is a climate that the that the political leadership that the, the government is creating that says, really, these are the pandemic is driven by individual choices when we know that really it, it, it it's a combination of individual choices and the structure in which those choices are made. You're absolutely right. Like that leadership creates a climate in which uh, tension uh, and conflict are going to only grow. Um, and that's going to take place at the level of all of our workplaces um, and at the detriment of, of workers' health Uh, and to the detriment of the uh, long-term functionality of relationships at those workplaces after the pandemic is done. Um, And uh, it is a very short-sighted policy choice on the part of the provincial government. Uh, But at the same time, I I, I think that, uh, you know, when you create a paid sick day regime, for instance, I think that what the government fears is that people will will get used to it. Um, so here's an emergency measure that actually significantly improves people's lives. Um, people are going to want to carry through after the pandemic, and rightly so sure well
0: it's a discussion we should be having uh but we're right out of time this time but let's let's pick up on this another time doctor because it's important coming out of the other end of this uh thank you for the great work that you and your staff have done on this and thanks so much for the time today doctor
2: thank you for inviting me to talk about it i really appreciate it
0: you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml the latest economic numbers, uh, well, tell two different stories here between Canada and the U.S. Uh, the U.S. economy is, uh, well, catching fire, as we've seen. Canada, well, we're in a bit of a rough patch these days. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Peter Hall, Vice President and Chief Economist with the Export Development Canada. Uh, Peter, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: Hey, it's my pleasure, Bill, as always.
0: You've been saying to us, Peter, for, as we've been charting this and trying to find just you know, where we're going to be and how this is going to look coming out the other end, uh, that there's an inverse relationship. When the COVID cases go down, the economy is going back up. And I guess the, what we're seeing from the U.S. pretty much sh- shows that's the case, isn't it?
3: No, that's absolutely right. You know, as uh, any economy is moving towards uh, general herd immunity, the better the success that they have with that, the more their economy is going to show that. And that's clearly evident in the employment numbers uh, this morning, uh, it doesn't mean that the fundamentals of both countries are, are necessarily different, uh, but it does mean that their COVID journey uh, is very different. So how does that herd immunity get built up? Well, it's a combination of things. It's, um, it's uh, the rate of vaccination. It's also uh, directly related to the rate of non-lethal infections. So if you have mm-hmm. a lot of infections actually happening, our own Ontario website will say that uh, we're actually in a situation where herd immunity is building up. So the U.S. was soundly criticized for its vast, you know, its high rates and its rapidly growing rates of, uh, of infections. Many, most of those were non-lethal, and so that increases their herd immunity. They're reaping the, the benefits of that right now. We're a little bit behind.
0: Yeah, and it's, you're, you're right. I mean, I know we're kind of getting into the medical aspects of this, but it's it's, it's all tied together, isn't it? Uh, that combination of herd immunity and vaccination is what gives consumer confidence. And uh, from what I'm seeing here, the American consumer is a lot more confident than they were five months ago.
3: No no question about that. Now, you know, the, the interesting thing is, Bill, that they never lost um, their capacity to be able to spend. Retail sales were one of the first things that came back in the economy. We talked before in a previous conversation about that V-shaped recovery in retail yeah. sales. And, you know, we were two months down, two months back up, and so were they there was great resilience there. And over that period of time, with less to spend on, of course, they built up very hefty bank accounts. That number is now roughly around 15% of GDP. Well, you can only imagine what would happen if that came into the economy like an absolute tsunami. We've got um, a cash stash north of the border here, equivalent to over 11% of our GDP. So there's no question about the capacity to grow. It's the question of whether the pandemic and our position inside of that is going to let us grow.
0: Peter, is it fair to say that both countries are on the same glide path here? We're just in different spots on that on that line.
3: I think that's that's absolutely right. You hit it spot on, Bill. Um, we we see this around the world. It really, you know, the governance and the success or lack thereof of the current COVID situation. And it really is a game of, you know, sort of cat and mouse uh, that's being played across a number of different nations. Nobody really you know, discovered what the prescription was for dealing with that in an economic sense. It's really been trial and error since day one. And, uh, and so, um, you know, that's, that's sort of just where we happen to be at at the moment. Ultimately, will we rebound from this? Absolutely. The economy is ready to charge out of the gate as soon it gets as it gets the green light on the pandemic front.
0: This is one of the anomalies of this whole situation and I, you know this is this is not your this is not your grandfather's recession, you know, because uh you know when th- when those happen and 08 09 I guess is the last one we can actually use but it's probably even still not an apples to apples comparison. Uh consumer spending went down because consumer confidence went down. Uh we've been we as consumers have always wanted to spend our money. We just haven't had the opportunity because the doors have been locked.
3: That's, that's absolutely it, Bill. You've hit on something that distinguishes this from the, post, uh, the pre-global financial crisis period of time. There, what we had was a five to seven year massive global bubble of excess activity. And, you know, it just needed something like the collapse of mortgages or what have you as the needle that burst the bubble. This time around, when we were in the pre-pandemic period of time, no bubble you know we might think we've we've got a housing bubble here in Canada and we do but they did not have a housing bubble in the united states neither did western europe have one and in fact It's very clear to see that there was under-consumption and under-investment for a very protracted period of time in both of those areas, in both the United States and Western Europe. Well, that's about 45% of world GDP that didn't enter this whole thing with a pre-recession bubble, but with an anti-bubble, and we call that pent-up demand. Well, if anything's going to bring your economy back from a pandemic with a roar, it's it's the existence of pent-up demand. Add a dollop of stimulus to that, and boy, you know, we're in for a fasten your seatbelts kind of year.
0: Well, you look at what happened after the 09 recession uh, and how governments actually did have to get involved and, and start, you know, giving the incentive programs for businesses and for consumers, too, to try to get us to shop. Uh, it's, it, I, I think I drew the analogy with this is this is kind of like, you know, the old days, remember those old pictures of uh, Black Friday, you know, when Walmart opened at 6 in the morning and this flood of consumers all want to get into the store at the same time. We're, we're dying to spend our money, aren't we?
2: Well, absolutely.
3: And, you know, what the danger still is, believe it or not, that that money comes into the economy too quickly. I mean, if, you, if you've got a cash stash above your normal uh, amount of cash that you're carrying in your accounts so that's it's equal to 15 percent of GDP. Well, if everybody wakes up one morning and says, well, it's time to spend all of that, you've got to adjust your annual growth rate up by 15 percent. Mm hmm. I mean, that's just staggering. You know, the, the stimulus package that we are seeing uh, with the U.S., uh, you know, bringing in right now, well, that bumped up uh, the Fed's forecast of the U.S. economy by 2%. So when you're talking about 2% versus 15%, well, the economy just can't handle that kind of deluge of cash at the moment. That's the kind of pent-up pressure we're talking about here. It is very, very substantial
0: is is it consequential at all peter as to where we do spend our money when that starts to happen I, i'm guessing uh that a lot of the industries that have been really hard hit by this uh tourism uh, restaurant hospitality that uh, and travel for that matter too maybe that was some of the ones that we focus on because that's what we're missing most in our lives
3: well i think that they really need to dust off their marketing campaigns right now yeah. because you're absolutely right bill you know the pent-up pressure if If that spending pressure gets spent in those areas, well, that will be a relief for the economy because there is actually capacity to absorb that on the tourism side of of things more than any other part of the economy, whether that's accommodation, whether it's the food sector, whether it's uh, the entertainment or the arts uh, sector, those are all you know, as low as 50% of pre-pandemic levels of activity. Well, you know, if the money goes into there, that's great because, because other parts of the economy are back and they don't have the capacity to absorb new spending. I mean, we can't crank out enough vehicles right now. Uh, everybody's trying to get their hands on the latest uh, new uh, new uh, vehicle and uh and we really have a constraint with uh with respect to that we can see what's happening to the housing sector so you know we've got we've got some areas of the economy they're redlining we certainly hope that a lot of that cash actually ends up going into into those parts of the economy that can really take that and and that really need it
0: peter what's that going to do to the employment numbers
3: well it's going to bring them back i mean uh, you know when when you consider that certain parts of the economy are at 50 percent of pre-pandemic levels that means roughly you know, 50% of the people that were working uh, in there gainfully ahead of, uh, of COVID-19 uh, are still waiting to jump back into the marketplace. You know, ahead of new job seekers, let's say, uh, there's just a lot of talent out there that's had to sit on the sidelines because, you know, uh, flight attendants are really not in hot demand uh, at the moment and, you know, restaurant workers and, and so forth. There's a mix of, uh, of skill levels that are inside of all of that. Well, the employment numbers are going to zoom up inside of those areas particularly. And thankfully, there are the people to actually fill those roles. Other sectors, they're running pretty hot right now. You know, there isn't a lot of spare labour around in things like construction at the moment.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it, that's that's part of the problem here, obviously, because of the shutdowns that are happening, especially here in Ontario. Uh, these businesses, well, the construction business, I guess, is a great example of that. I mean, they were going crazy, and now they've had to cut back because of this lockdown, and they're hardly waiting to get back to work in situations like this. There's another factor I wanted to ask you about, though. It, when we compare you know, the U.S. and Canadian economies and where we are in, in this recovery process, uh, and, and that's the relief package that uh, the, the Congress finally passed down there. Uh, an awful lot of people got a lot of... Uh, government stimulus checks Um, and uh, personal income actually jumped down there too uh, which i guess really i guess is a a catalyst that was that was kind of like throwing some uh, coal onto the fire wasn't it to get consumers hot again
3: well yes and you know really bill uh, one of one of the worries right now i mean i used to say that this is a nice problem to have you've got more growth than you can handle. Uh, But now the fear with that uh, stimulus package coming in is that it takes the U.S. economy over their long-run trend potential rate of growth. And, of course, that's uh, not potential rate of growth, but actual potential level of activity. When that happens, that's a warning that, um, that prices are going to start to rise. And we're already seeing the beginnings of that now. Now, that's something the Federal Reserve Board will have to worry about. Uh, The benefit, let's say, if you're a Canada or somebody that trades intensively with the United States is if they can't handle it, guess what? It washes across the borders. Mm -hmm. And so the OECD has estimated that the U.S. stimulus plan will actually kick up Canadian GDP by a full percentage point. We already had pretty strong growth happening baked into the numbers already. And you can layer on an additional one percent to that. Well, that's a real help to our economy when that happens.
0: And it just, just underscores what you've been saying and for years now. I mean, we are so. Tied to the American economy, for good or for bad. I mean, if they're doing well, we do well, uh, and, and conversely, of course, if they start to go into the dumper, we, it's going to have an adverse effect on us. Uh, so it's 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 kind of like we're in uh, we're in the jet stream here, and we're just kind of following along. How far behind are we, though? I mean, when can we start to see some of that action on this side of the border? Is 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 it totally dependent upon the lockdown and when that as that finally ends?
3: Well, it's a real stop-start exercise, Bill. It's the right question to ask. And, you know, once we get the green light on the pandemic front, it's amazing how quickly the economy comes back. So we may be lamenting the loss of 207,000 jobs uh, this time around, and nobody nobody takes that lightly. But, you know, let's remember that in the two previous months, we had in February an increase of 259. We had 303,000 new jobs in March, and so these are substantial gains. We used to get really excited about 40,000 jobs in a given month. You know, we're blowing this away by, you know, anywhere from five to ten times the magnitude here. So this is a highly volatile situation. Thankfully, the trend is in the right, uh, in the right direction. And so we have a month of setback, but we have the capacity to actually bring uh, hundreds of thousands of workers back into the fray once we get the green light, once uh, once we are uh, ready to roll again, and and so I've got every confidence that that day isn't far away from now, uh, especially as our rates of vaccine rollout are actually uh, some of the fastest in the world. We're faster now than the United States than Germany, we're faster than Israel and we are faster than the United Kingdom, and they are all the front runners. So we're really playing a game of catch-up right now. We're well ahead of the European Union in terms of what it is that we are doing. And so it is it is simply a matter of time before we get to that uh, point of herd immunity that the United States is running. I think we're, we're weeks away from that now.
0: And I, I'm- I'm sensing a lot of other folks are sharing that optimism as well and and your points well taken we've seen the numbers and as great as the success story of the uh, the vaccination program in the states has been it is starting to to tail off right now they may have actually peaked and that's going to be where it is and the growth is, is incredible to see what's happening in Canada I know we're way behind with the population that's vaccinated uh, but the fact that there's growth here is a positive sign and and I guess uh you know the the economic indicators indicate that's happening too I mean the Bank of Canada is still projecting 6.5 uh, percent growth for the canadian economy uh for the latter part of this year and i guess we have to put this in context too don't we peter i mean the first quarter we were pretty much neck and neck with the u.s economy they've bolted ahead right now but from what i'm seeing for the numbers here from the bank of canada they're expecting us to maybe not catch up but we're going to be on their tail pretty soon
3: well you know here's here's part of the problem bill you know we, we happen to be a country that lives right next to Mr. Perfect. You know, the guy who yeah. cuts his grass with scissors and, you know, that sweeps his sidewalk every day. There's nothing ever wrong, you know, with, with that. You know, the, their, their kids are all out working for the United Nations or what have you, and, <laughs> and, and you know, we're sort of looking at ourselves and saying, hmm, you know, uh, I never am going to stack up to this person. Well, you know, we're, we're next to the country in the world that really does so many things better than anybody else does. When we compare ourselves to most of the rest of the world, we are still well out in front. And, uh, you know, uh, this is, this is just a sad thing. We are comparing ourselves to best in class economies and wondering why we're not there. That's a good thing to do. You know, we, we want to be the best uh, out there, but uh, we're pretty close to the front runner.
0: May twentieth is going to be pivotal day. That's the day the lockdown is supposed to end. That was the deadline that was given. Now we don't know what's going to happen. I know the COVID numbers are are, are not encouraging at this stage, uh, but but it's it's going to be pivotal because it's going to send a message, isn't it, as to when this recovery is actually going to kick into high gear.
3: The interesting thing about the combination bill of lockdowns and uh, vaccinations and the non-lethal infections uh, that we are are having is that they all seem to be yielding dividends in terms of being able to bring the economy back on. So when you're in the middle of it, it never feels very good. Um, But as far as we know, as far as we can tell from anybody else's experience, it's the right thing to do. It does require patience, uh, but it is what pays off. And we're seeing south of the border that that's exactly what has happened to them. So our day is coming. Uh, it's not today, uh, but we're, you know, as far as we can tell, doing the things that actually lead to those good outcomes and, um, you know, get us to the point where we're all back as close to normal as we possibly could be.
0: We really have to take a deep breath here, don't we, and just understand, as you say, where we are, because, uh, I mean, the numbers came out this morning, the employment numbers, and you look at that, and that's a big number, and yeah, we should be concerned. We don't want to be dismissive of it, but that's a snapshot of today, Uh, and, and, you know, we have to next week, there'll be another snapshot and and hopefully there's going to be some improvement here. And that's what we have to look at. As you say, have to step back a little bit and say, where are we going? And the indicators seem to indicate that we're, we're on a pretty good path here.
3: That's right. I mean, there's an ancient proverb that's really helpful here. Wise King Solomon said, you know, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And if there's anything that has deferred our hope, it's, it's these, Uh, constant, well, it's going to be in three months. Oh, now it's going to be in six months. Now it's nine months. Now it's a year. And the can keeps getting kicked down the road with no apparent success. Well, we are now seeing success. But if, if anybody had told us last March that in May of the following year, we were still going to be at this thing, you know, we would have, uh, we would have looked at them as if they were, they were from another planet. Mm-hmm. Um and, and that's what we're dealing with at the moment it's how do you take the facts of what's actually happening and instill hope in an economy that, you know, where that hope has really been ebbing over the past uh, while? You know, we don't often as economists talk about something like hope, but it's, a, it's an essential ingredient to keeping a capitalist system going. And, um, you know, thankfully, we are seeing some of that light at the end of the tunnel, and that's reviving uh, the hopes that, uh, that we have for the economy.
0: Peter, it's always great to get your perspective on this and, and your insights into this. I think you've allayed a lot of the concerns a lot of us are having. Uh, not out of the woods yet, but uh, we can see it from here anyway. Uh, have a great weekend. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk again soon.
3: You too, Bill. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Take care.
0: Take care. Peter Hall, Vice President Chief Economist with uh, Export Development Canada. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.